It's like two banks of a river and you've got this one side where you're hopeful for motherhood and then the other side where childlessness has landed and you, you kind of know that it's not going to happen. In between that space is what I call the bridge or the void. In that space, it's like you can't go backwards but you're also not quite ready to move forward and embrace childlessness. Welcome to The Lisa Show, where we take a good look at life. Hey, it's Lisa. This is our Starting Over series, and today we're looking at a kind of starting over that is different from every other story we've heard so far. Most of the time, when you think about starting over, I think about change. Whether it's the kind of change you choose, like going back to school or finding a new career, or the change that you can't always choose, like the end of a marriage or a fill-in-the-blank with any unwanted or unforeseen event, you get the idea. Some of us are born changing, others have change thrust upon us. And we're going to hear several more stories about change as we continue to highlight journeys of people who have started over in their lives. But today, you're going to hear about a kind of starting over that occurs when life doesn't change, when you desperately want or expect it to change as a part of your vision of the future and plans for who you wanna be and what you wanna do, and then it doesn't. How do you move on from something that hasn't happened? Today's guest is Sarah Roberts, a community pillar with over 30 years of experience teaching, counseling, and providing support to people who have experienced infertility or unwanted childlessness. She has her own story about starting over and finding meaning in her life after a grueling battle with infertility. And she also has some incredible advice for others going through similar transitions. But before we get too far ahead of ourselves, let me introduce you to Sarah. Thank you so much for inviting me to to participate in this conversation with you, Lisa. Um, It's such an inspiring podcast, and so it's so lovely to to be here with you. I just wanted to quickly start um, to let you know that I'm coming in from Brisbane in Australia, and uh, when we gather, the first thing that we do is to acknowledge the traditional owners of lands where we live and work. Um, So for me, that's the Yagara and Turrbal people of the Brisbane region, and I just wanted to acknowledge their elders past, present and emerging. So just to begin there. And thank you so much for holding the space for this really deep but complex conversation. This can be a hard conversation to hear, particularly for people who perhaps are parenting and and maybe quite overwhelmed and find that quite an intense experience. This conversation can also be tricky for people who have clearly chosen and made that legitimate decision that parenting isn't for them and maybe don't relate to some of the aspects of my story. So I just want to acknowledge that as well. Um, And then finally to acknowledge the members of your audience who had wanted to be parents and where it didn't happen for them. And and it has been a struggle and it has been potentially quite painful, but also enriching. And they may have have been making some choices in their lives towards meaning and connection and, and a lot of respect for the people who are living with this story. 
As I'm sure you can already hear, Sarah has this immense personal empathy and compassion for people who are going through this. And a lot of that stems from her own journey, which started early when she was first forming her ideas of identity and self. I grew up in a large family and I was in suburban Brisbane. And um, as a young child, I wasn't sure whether being a mum, I hadn't really thought about it, I guess. In my early 20s, though, I realised that motherhood was really important for me. And when I looked across my life, being a mum was like a given for me, where it was just assumed that at some point I would move into being mum and meet my children and raise them. And I recognise that that's not for everybody, but for me it was a really important part of who I was as a person. I met my husband in my early 30s. We tried probably kind of around mid-30s onwards with children and it was a decade-long journey. Um, We went through IVF. Um, We did conceive and had multiple pre-implantation miscarriages. And, um, yeah, a decade later, I made that heartbreaking decision. Well, it was kind of made for me, was that that I wasn't going to be a mum and certainly other pathways to parenthood weren't open to me at that point. And really by the end of a decade, I left that journey quite broken and I just made that really heartbreaking decision to walk away from that dream of what I had hoped my life would be. Sarah's heartbreaking decision and how she was able to make it and process it is something we're going to hear about more in a moment as part of her starting over journey. But to set the stage for that, we have to look a little closer at the grief and loneliness and weird social implications that show up in a transition like this. And I was really overwhelmed by the grief and actually quite surprised by how deeply I was grieving and then also how deeply it had really impacted on my sense of self, who I was in the world and what life really was about um, for me. And almost all the women I knew uh, had become mothers or were child-free by choice. There really wasn't anybody that I knew personally who had wanted to be a mum and it didn't happen. And when I tried to talk about it, often there would be comments that might be said around, you know, perhaps I didn't try hard enough or aren't I lucky or why don't you adopt, trying to help me to problem solve or, you know, being a parent's really hard, have one of mine. Kind of these comments that really shut me down and really disenfranchised my grief. This experience of disenfranchised grief is so vivid and it's something that I can relate to deeply. It feels very isolating when your grief is a public affair and you get these kinds of comments. The problem solving or the silver lining or the blaming. I mean, some of it is just bewildering and there's this impulse where you start to develop like, don't tell people, play it close to the chest. I mean, you can avoid a lot of awkward and painful interactions by being guarded and by not sharing. But if Sarah ever had the impulse, she instead chose to run in the opposite direction, which I think is really interesting, sharing and building community resources for people like her. Once I started to talk publicly about it, which was in 2014, I had other women reach out to me and we'd talk about our experiences and and we had a lot in common. And they would say, I'm getting the same comments as well. Like, what is that about? And what we realized is that we were living in a culture that was quite blind 
to our grief and our experience. And we were often shamed and often felt quite invisible and unable to perhaps talk about our experiences and receive the support that we need. And so it was kind of that, that cultural context a little bit where to be an adult woman, it was just assumed that everybody would become mothers. And for those of us that didn't, often we received comments that often came from a place of pity and poor you and and yet we were maturing and transitioning into adult women as well and so it was really about starting to find our voice and starting to raise a little bit of awareness in the community and, and support others who were really struggling. I think it's significant that Sarah talks about finding our voice, referring to not only her own voice, but the other people who came on this journey with her. That tendency that we were talking about earlier, that people have to retreat into themselves when their culture is blind to their grief, is something that Sarah noticed happening to other people. And when she observed that, it made all the difference to the way she chose to share, not only to create the space that was so missing in society for people like her, especially as they're starting out and accepting this new reality they didn't choose, but to bring other people into that space with her. So many women do retreat into themselves. And I think there was something within me that was almost like this, this need for a voice, a sense of fairness and a sense of connection for other women. And it was also um, because my background had been really kind of a social work counselling background, I always had had this strong sense of justice and care for people who perhaps were struggling. And I guess I kind of realised that if I was feeling really silenced and didn't have a voice, what were other women experiencing? And what I found as I've connected with women is that so many women kind of retreat from their social friendships and can become quite isolated and may feel like there aren't safe spaces for them to actually talk about what they're experiencing and what they're going through. Sometimes we live in a community where people want you to present the positive, the upside, the hero story. And when we're feeling a little bit broken and struggling, um, we perhaps maybe don't have the, the literacy or the, the grief literacy really to actually understand what's going on and what we might be needing at those points, which really is being able to just acknowledge and validate and normalise our stories. Um, so what happens a lot for women like me is that when we reach out and we shut down, because it's so silent within the culture, what we can do is we can internalise it and feel, oh God, what's what's wrong with me? Why aren't I coping with it? Like, And you can feel like clearly everybody else is, is doing fine. But then as you start to, to reach out and connect, you go, oh yeah, me too. This is actually also quite a struggle and how do we move on from that struggle and create meaning and connection within that experience as well? That's a really important part of the story as well, I think. I think yeah. so too. And I think what a benefit it is for you to have a grief literacy right now. I love that term. I don't know what it's like to go through childlessness and infertility. I do know what it means to grieve deeply. I lost yeah. my husband and I find a connection with you in how you're kind of surprised that we live in a culture that doesn't have a grief literacy. How did that impact your ability to start over after, you know, a decade-long struggle? One of the things that can happen is that that often because we live in a culture where womanhood can be equated to motherhood, for those of us who 
unable to be mothers, sometimes we can feel like I have to do something really big to kind of make up for or compensate for not being a mum. And often it's considered natural to be able to be fertile. And so we can really, can be a real reckoning in our relationship with our body and our relationship with ourselves. So as we're looking externally for, for care and support, how are we able to find ways to also gently offer that to ourselves? Um, and so what I've found is that a lot of women that I work with um, really shift their own internal landscape as part of the journey of working through the grief, really having a look at the shame and the other complex emotions that might come up for them. So that's a really key piece of the the journey. Sarah's explanation of this deep grief and having to process the shame and discomfort that seeps in due to spoken or unspoken societal expectations, all of this sets the scene for how difficult it really was to start over. Sarah's going to describe that moment, how and when she stepped out of her old expectations and began processing her grief in a new way, a process that was anything but simple. When I walk you through this story, it's a dark space, so I I just wanted to just offer a trigger that if this is difficult for people to hear, that just people be aware of that. I did my last IVF cycle, I think at that stage I was in my mid-40s, so it was very unlikely it was going to happen. And even at that stage, I still had two embryos transferred. Um, And even after I had left the clinic after the last cycle, I still was hopeful for another 18 months. And what I describe for women, it's like two banks of a river and you've got this one side where you're hopeful for motherhood and then the other side where childlessness has landed and you you kind of know that it's not going to happen. And in between that space is what I call the bridge or the void. And in that space, it's like you can't go backwards, but you're also not quite ready to move forward and embrace childlessness. And so I had 18 months where I would wake in the middle of the night from this dream. I was in a on a beach, standing on a beach in a white nightdress, and I would just walked into the sea, and it was under a full moon, and I just walked into the sea. I kept having this recurring dream, and then I would actually literally go out and stand on my property under the moon. What I realised is that I, I wasn't actually suicidal, but it was like the part of me that wanted to be a mother, um, she was leaving she actually realised that she wasn't going to be realised. And so it was my psyche really digesting that. And at the end of that 18 months, even though I was actually still hopeful of being a mum during that time, I'd hoped some miracle would happen. At the end of that 18 months, a friend of mine, she sat me down and she said, sweetie, this isn't going to happen for you, is it? And for the first time, I was able to say the words, I'm never going to be a mum. And it was just this sense of, wow, like to even be able to acknowledge that it wasn't going to happen. And then that was also during a period in my life when my father was unwell. He was dying um, from cancer and so I did a lot of support for him during that time. And then in the following year, and this is one thing I would suggest for women, is that during that first year to really create a little bit of a cocoon in your life to really create a sanctuary to to look after you and your needs. And potentially maybe even to think of what is something I can do to honour or ritualise the end of this in my life. 
Um, and one thing that we did was we actually went and walked 800 kilometres across Spain. We walked the Camino de Santiago in Spain. And that was our process of... I had finished reading Cheryl Strayed's Wild and I had thought, oh, I'll go and I'll, I'll do this walk and it'll all be fixed up. Yeah. Um, which, you know, the illusion that you carry. But you just go forward. I I, I really do admire I know, right? that. I know, you've got to do something, so why not? You totally do. Yeah. You just breathe and go, oh, I'm still here. Yeah. And so <laughs> what happened for me then was um, I walked across Spain and it became a full stop at the end of that period of my life. It was like the ritual ending to say, this part of my life is finished. And I think back on that time, it literally felt like I was in a video game and the game had ended and now I was in bonus time and it was just like, I don't know what this is going to look like. I have no idea because I hadn't, I just hadn't imagined what it might be. And I thought the grief would be finished at that point, but I came back from Spain and fell in a heap. I had a bit of stuff going on physically. And really that was almost the beginning of the grief was it's kind of like it had landed and now it's time to grieve. I was no longer in denial or hoping that it might happen. And that was the end of 2016. And that was the point that I really started to move through the grief. I think it's so poignant when Sarah mentions the way her grief evolved outside of what she expected. She built these cathartic practices in her life. She was taking care of herself in her cocoon. She created that symbolic milestone of walking across Spain. And as she closed the chapter for some of those old hopes and disappointments, it felt like the grief would be finished, but that wasn't the case. And for all of us who have experienced grief, this is a deeply relatable thing. Just when I think I can't be surprised anymore by the way grief shows up in my life or what changes about it, I'm wrong. And we talked about this a little bit, how even these big moves to start over with a new mindset don't always equate to pain going away when we think it should. One of the things that did help me was that I knew that because my work had been in counselling and I had assumed that I would come back from Spain and have this grand new idea of my yeah. life being... Wouldn't that be great? Completely <laughs> different. <laughs> and um, I'm only laughing because I did a similar thing. I was like, okay, it's been a year yeah. after my husband's death and now I'm going to emerge. And I had new great dreams and I was like, oh, it's just a regular Tuesday. Oh, great. What do I do? You know, kind of thing. It was like, <laughs> so oh, to that. This, is a, this is really hard. <laughs> Exactly right, exactly. And, um, and and you do, like you wake up each day yeah. in your own life and you're kind of going, oh, what is, what is this like? Um, and one of the things that I really work with women around is that, that when I talk about grief, I talk about it being like a river that flows. And when you think about that river, often when people are grieving, what we often need to do is just allow what comes up now these feelings to come up, to feel them and allow them to move through. And it's like you let that river flow and you don't know timing the time frame. It's a process, like it's a process. But within that river, you might have things like boulders or you even might have dams that keep that river stuck. And within childlessness in particular, there can be multiple places where that river can get stuck. One of them is trauma, where you 
are so activated into this adrenal active space that you're almost out of your body and out of your emotions. And it's very difficult to kind of sit with feelings when you're in a trauma activated state. And that's all about safety. It's all about finding ways to feel safe within your life. Other places where the grief can get stuck can be that sense of shame, that sense of self-worth, that sense of worthiness. And a lot of that can be echoes back into times in the past where we may have taken on, uh, where our needs may not have been met perhaps as children. And what we've done is we've gone, oh, that's because I'm not worthy or that I'm not allowed to feel or it's not okay to be angry. You know, it's not unusual for women to feel really difficult emotions like envy or jealousy for what they don't have. And one of the things I'll do when I'm working with women is that idea that childlessness can almost be like an invitation toward wholeness. That anger, that jealousy, that rage, that sadness, all those difficult feelings. Imagine you're at this huge banquet table and all of those emotions have their own seat. They are a part of you and there's important messages and needs within those feelings. And it's really about sitting with and understanding and being in dialogue with those parts of yourself and understanding and that's almost the way that you come to a place of wholeness and so rather than going I need to not feel that it's like oh envy you've arrived again oh I know when envy comes up that means that there's something missing for me and I understand that it's it tells me what's missing and, and if I can hold myself and my feelings in this really loving and compassionate way rather than critically judging ourselves and so it's almost like we're completely shifting our internal landscape as we're navigating through the grieving process. I didn't expect to connect with Sarah so deeply about grief when we first started talking about childlessness, something I've never experienced. And even though starting over for Sarah came with very fresh grief. She found ways to empower herself and she kept looking for healing, which is also something that I can identify with as well. What she learned very quickly was that the resources that she needed didn't always exist. And even good therapists weren't necessarily good at talking about unwanted childlessness. When I say I, I went to a grief therapist, I did actually try around. I went to see a number of different people. And what I found was that some of the comments that were made in social spaces were made to me in the therapy room as well. I had enough knowledge because of my background to go, oh, oh, yeah, that's mm. about your level of understanding. It's not about me. And so I was able to kind of separate that a little bit. Um, but what I did realise is, oh, this hasn't been talked about very much. It hasn't been well-researched. There's not a lot of books around how to work therapeutically with people coming to terms with childlessness. There just wasn't that work that had been done. So I guess that kind of lit a little spark within me to go, oh, maybe there's something there that I could bring to the table to, to maybe support the learning around that. And really, it's only been the last decade where people have started to come forward and talk about their stories and beginning to see researchers who've got lived experience who are starting to tell their stories and to do the work to really inform therapists around how to work well with women who are experiencing childlessness. So that was kind of the little spark, I guess. 
And that little spark has been propelling Sarah ever since to change the rhetoric around childlessness. And one aspect of this important conversation is identity and self-worth. There can be quite a gendered experience of being a parent or being a mother or even being a father. So there can be a real sense of masculinity if you're a father and femininity if you're a mother. Childlessness can be a real reckoning with our sense of self and identity. And often we may have taken on some of those social messages. And so if we're able to kind of have a look at the culture and go, okay, this is what the culture says. The only way to be a fully realised woman is perhaps to be a mother. And let's talk about reproduction as being, yes, it's a really valuable part of the human experience. And if people choose to do that, it's a really meaningful and important part of what it means to be human. But it's not the only part of what it means to be human. And sometimes when we live, life will throw things at us and sometimes they're just awful things and there's not necessarily a reason and they just happen and that's part of what it means to be human and being alive. I love that Sarah pointed this out very specifically because any part of starting over isn't done in a vacuum. Really, our society and the people surrounding us can and do influence us in ways that we don't always fully acknowledge. And I love talking about ways that we can help other people start over more effectively, even if this isn't our own personal journey. And I love this reminder about what it means to be human and why it's so important to keep that definition inclusive. In the same way that parenthood as the sole measure of someone's value in society is the harmful mindset, people who are childless face additional obstacles in a society that is mostly uninformed about this kind of journey. The other thing that can come up can be blame, where people can be quite judgmental of us. And what I would suggest is for people who are engaging with people who don't have kids is starting from a place of respect and also wonder. And, and and I don't mean intrusively, so it's about really respecting someone's boundaries and privacy and what they feel comfortable sharing. But perhaps wondering, I wonder what life is like for you. I wonder what brings you meaning and what the connections are in your life. You know, gently start to build those kinds of connections because there's always been people who haven't had children across human communities. And we've often had really significant, important roles in, in community life. And what's kind of happened is that we've broken into these really kind of isolated nuclear family units and often are quite disconnected from each other's lives in many ways. And it's about how do we bring community and connection back into our lives and how that can be a great benefit to children, I think. It's really important oh, for children. Absolutely. Right? To have exposure to lots of different ways of being, um, being adults and um, different perspectives can be, and it really allows them to become so much more expansive as, as, as they're growing into, into being adults themselves. So, 
Yeah. Oh, I love that yeah. perspective. It's so beautiful. I mean, it's really true. And I feel that there's so much to be learned in so many other facets of starting over, of this sense of community and connection that we all need. So why would it be different in this situation? Suffering in isolation isn't how you best heal. And it, it, yeah. it has so many other benefits in society. When you do see, there's so many different ways to be a, per, a human, to be an adult, yeah. to like, it is, it's freeing no matter what path happens, whether it's your imagined, your dreamed, your undreamed, whatever it is, it's just so much so more expansive. True. That kind of support system, I think sometimes we, we speak very generally about, you know, community and connection. For you, what kind of support systems have been the most valuable? Definitely the, the, so the three for me was to really create that sanctuary and to really, it, almost like it was a reckoning. So I, I was somebody who, ha, who had attachment wounds from, from my, my younger years. Um, and so there was a lot of healing work that was needed around me and my sense of self and sense of self-worth. And so, so a lot of that work was needed to create that sanctuary and really learn to tend to and care to me. The second thing was then around um, finding a really good therapeutic relationship. Most of us can benefit from good therapy, right? Um, but particularly when we're in those really vulnerable times and times of, of intense transition in our lives. And what I'll say is that absolutely for some women, the transition to childlessness can be as much an identity transformation as in the transition to motherhood. Mm. And there is significant things that can happen within that, that process. And finally, I would say is initially would probably be to, to reach out to other women who have been through the experience. And so others who can validate a normalist story and support you and listen. And not everyone who is childless is going to be really a good connection for you, but it's kind of gently finding those opportunities to connect. But once you're in a more solid place, it makes you feel so much more solid in being able to navigate social situations and friendships and family relationships where your story maybe isn't seen or helped. And you, it just allows you to be a lot more, oh, they, they just don't get it. Like, that's okay. That's probably the three really key things that, that I would suggest. Such a generous way to see that. I had one more question for Sarah, and that was about something I found on her website, a quote which said, an empty cradle does not mean an empty life. I asked her about the origin of that sentiment, and she told me this story. It was like I was standing in front of a one-way mirror, and I was looking into, into a life that you can't reach, a life that you're so deeply desiring, a self that you realize isn't going to happen. And when you're standing in that place, it's really hard to imagine anything else. And there can be this sense of, oh, if I give up on that dream, then I'm giving up on my kids. And does it mean that I didn't want it? It can be really, really hard. And the first thing is just to notice where you're standing and to take a deep breath and what is it that I need right now? And then to gently, perhaps when you're ready, to, to take that first step. And that can be really hard. If you've got people to walk with you on that journey, they can be there with you for part of that. But it may come to a time where that vision 
might stop from being right in front of you to just gently moving to the side and gently sometimes it then might shift to your periphery and you're starting to see other possibilities. This mindfulness that Sarah is describing is very different from the advice that people like her tend to get. Often what's said to us is, oh, well, you know, you just need to give up on that and get over it and move forward. It's not an external process. It's from within you where you start to go, oh, I might go and, I don't know, maybe go and learn drawing or something, or just something simple and gentle that allows you to keep moving forward with life. And it's very much something that you craft that comes from who you are in the world. And just every blessing and care for you if you're travelling through this journey is really, really sending you love and hopes that you can move forward and move to a place of wholeness. Moving to a place of wholeness is something that resonates with me, especially with the themes of grief and acceptance in this journey. I'm so inspired by the many different ways Sarah responded to a lack of resources or lack of understanding by choosing to create those things, those things that she needed for other people. There's this incredible empowered selflessness in the way she's fostered communities and conversations for other people. And I also admire her honesty in addressing the way grief really works. For Sarah, starting over was a combination of forced conditions in her life and a choice that only she could make to let go of the impossible and find healing. Also, that metaphor that she used of a banquet really sticks with me. Uh, That idea of inviting all of your emotions to sit down at the table and accept them and acknowledge them and not judge them or fear them so acutely is such a hopeful thought. Using that idea that all of your emotions, the anger, the pain, the envy, whatever comes up in any grief transition or journey like this one are just invitations to wholeness. You know, when life doesn't change the way we think it will or should or should have, it really brings me peace knowing that there are these avenues for joy that also weren't in the plans either. When you experience more of them, it becomes more hopeful, but especially in the beginning when you're starting over, you wonder if they really exist. You have to trust those who are further along in the journey to tell you, yes, those are other moments are coming, other emotions other opportunities for unexpected in good ways are also on the horizon as well. Loss, reaching out, building a community, and becoming whole together, those themes that Sarah talked about are great ways to think about starting over. But it's that last one of becoming whole together that is the takeaway for me because I think that's what makes us all human. The Lisa Show is a production of BYU Radio, hosted by Lisa Valentine Clark and produced by Becca Hurley and McKay Menden, with help from Avery Stoneley, Blake Morse, Kenny Mears, and Michael Combs, with music and post-production by Gracie Davis. Sarah Roberts is the founder of The Empty Cradle, a support community for women experiencing unwanted childlessness. You can find out more about her and links to her website and Instagram on our episode page. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. 
You can also join our listener community on Facebook and follow us on Instagram for more content and behind the scenes with Lisa.